I'm Shelly Davis. In case you weren't here the first week, I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word this fall, and that is a thrill and a delight for me. I can't tell you how much it encourages me to study the Word of God with each of you this morning. I uh, And you should have verses and outlines that you got off your table. I think Wendy's got them if you don't have a verse sheet and an outline. Okay, I heard the greatest story this week that goes along with our study on siblings. Linda Henry, I don't know whether Linda's here somewhere, usually she sits over there. Uh, There she is, right there. Linda Henry, believe it or not, Linda Henry is a grandmother twice over. And she had her um, second grandson, her daughter had another baby, her second little boy last week. And so Michael, her daughter, had done this great job of preparing little Mason, who was three, to be a big brother. And so when the big day came and the baby was born and they brought Mason in the room to meet his um, that little baby Ty for the first time, Linda said they were all gathered around and let him hold the baby. And Mason looked down at his little baby brother for the first time and said, he's my best friend. Now, before the ooing and aahing had even stopped, though, Linda said, Mason then looked down at his little brother and said, but why isn't he talking to me? (laughs) So it doesn't matter, as you can tell, it doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been a sibling. When you have a sibling, you already have expectations for them. Little baby Ty was probably only a few hours old, and he had already, um, in some form or fashion, managed to disappoint his big brother. So... um, (laughs) Anyway, it's because of those expectations and those disappointments that we are taking a look at real women and real relationships this morning. So let's get started. I want you to open your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 2, which is where we uh, were last week in our study. You already know from your small groups and from doing your homework that we are going to talk about a great gal this morning, an amazing gal, a real gal by the name of Miriam. Now, last week, Anjanette Walshauser, who was our uh, teaching team leader last week, she gave us an insightful look at Jochebed, who is Miriam's mom. And Jochebed was a woman, we learned from Anjanette and from our study, she was a woman who put her faith into action. And when we opened up and looked at Exodus 2 last week, Anjanette said, you know, in our culture, the story of baby Moses in the basket is pretty familiar. So I want you all to take a look at that story through fresh eyes. Well, I'm going to ask you to do that again this week because we're going to look at it again. This time, not through the eyes of Jochebed, but we're going to look at it, the same story through the eyes of Miriam. We're going to look at it from this young girl's perspective, whose faith was going to be a life changer for many. Now, I think you probably remember from last week that the nation of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt since the death of uh, Jacob and Joseph, the patriarch Jacob and his son Joseph. The nation of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for almost... Well, they were enslaved for a total of 400 years. When this story takes place, it was about 320 years. And as the nation was in captivity, they grew strong and numerous, and the Egyptians became afraid of them. They thought, whoa, we better look out. The nation of Israel obviously um, is being blessed in some form or fashion, and if we're not careful, they're going to rise up and take us over. So the Pharaoh 
decided to oppress the nation of Israel. He did that in a variety of ways, but probably um, the most difficult way for the nation of Israel was that he put out a decree that all the babies that were boys, when they were born, they had to be killed. And that brings us to the life and the story of our young girl, Miriam. When our account begins and we look at Miriam for the first time, she's probably 9 or 10 years old. And she has two baby brothers. She has Aaron, who's 3 years old at the time. And Aaron was actually born before the Pharaoh's edict that all the babies had to die. So he was able to grow up in his family to the age of 3. But now she has a new baby brother, Moses. And Moses is one of those baby boys that's been born with a death sentence on his head. And we're going to meet Miriam on the banks of the Nile. River, where she becomes a key player in probably one of the most unusual rescue operations ever recorded in history. So turn with me to Exodus 2. Let me read these verses for you. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket. Um, She coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the banks of the Nile. His sister, which of course is Miriam, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then the Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrews' babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Okay, so this was definitely a little family that lived in difficult times. And I can only imagine, can you think about what a 10-year-old girl must have been going through her head knowing that her baby brother was under a death sentence? And, of course, she lived with this, I'm sure, before the baby was born. It had to have been talked about in her family. And then after the baby was born, as she lived with it for the three months, her mother is talking to God and listening to God and trying to have a plan. You have to know that that was a disturbing thing for a young girl. I was around Miriam's age when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. Some of you young girls may not even know what that was. But I can still remember the fear of the Cuban Missile Crisis and going to school every day for several weeks and having bomb drills, as if sitting in the hallway was really going to save us from nuclear attack. But... Back then, they thought that if we just went out and covered our head, we would all um, survive. I still remember hearing, you could hear the B-52s rev up on the runway at Carswell Air Force Base. It was a SAC base. And when you would hear those B-52s rev up, you thought we were going to be under nuclear attack any minute. But what I really remember the most and what gave me the most fear was that I saw my parents were afraid. As they stockpiled food and water and tried to make a plan, for their family, I didn't really understand what a Cuban missile was. I didn't understand really what a nuclear attack was. But I understood that my parents were scared and fearful. And that's what made me the most afraid. Miriam's parents also passed something on to their child in this very deadly situation. But it was not their fear. It was their faith. 
Miriam's parents had not raised her to fear in any circumstances, even the most difficult circumstances. Hebrews 11.23 on your verse sheet shares that with us. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Despite her circumstances, despite what her parents knew might possibly happen to their child, Miriam was not raised in an atmosphere of fear and that makes all the difference in her life. Not only was baby Moses no ordinary baby, but this was no ordinary family It was a family of faith. And because of that, Miriam herself was no ordinary child. She was a child with faith. Now, I think that Anjanette probably shared with you last week that it doesn't really say anywhere in the text that Miriam was specifically assigned to be her baby brother's protector. But I think there are some clues in the text that actually point us in that direction, that there was a well-thought-out plan here in Miriam's family. The first one is verse 4. We see in verse 4 it says that Miriam stands at a distance to see what would happen to the baby. Now, I feel confident that Miriam's mother, who has spent three months making that basket very deliberately and then deliberately placed it in the water and taking her hand off the basket, that then she has not randomly allowed Miriam to stand around and watch the baby get eaten by crocodiles. I don't think that she probably was that negligent. For three months, Jochebed had talked to God and listened to God about this very moment. And she had trusted God with the outcome of that moment. So it's hard for me to believe that the details of this drama are simply a chance happening, including Miriam being the lookout and this unusual babysitter in this situation along the banks of the, of the Nile. And when you put that together with the fact that Miriam, who was just a simple 9- or 10-year-old um, Jewish slave girl, immediately approaches the Pharaoh's um, daughter with a perfect solution that will allow the family to be reunited. When you put those two together, that gives us some confidence in the idea that Miriam's involvement was not accidental, that there was a plan of sorts that Miriam knew about and was willing to take part in. Jochebed was not only a mother who had a strong faith in her God, she was a mother who really had great confidence in the faith of her daughter. Now, I'm sure Miriam was an obedient child, and Jochebed had confidence in Miriam's um, obedience and her intelligence and whatever, but I think what she had the most confidence in is Miriam's own faith in God. Just as Jochebed knows exactly what God can do when you call upon God, how big he is and how powerful he is, without a doubt, so does Miriam. And it is the simple faith of a child that becomes the catalyst for the hand of God to work a miracle in the life of Moses. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the power of the faith of a child. In Mark 10, on your verse sheet, people were bringing the little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. You know, the faith of a child 
is a remarkable thing. A remarkable thing. It is simple and pure and uncomplicated. It doesn't ask too many questions. And it doesn't need to know the answers to all the mysteries in the world. It simply believes and it simply trusts. Last spring when we had our series Come Follow Me, Kathy Harrelson spoke about Priscilla. And she used a great example. Um, Priscilla was a risk taker. And Kathy used the example of a child standing on the side of a swimming pool jumping, being a risk taker and jumping into the arms of a parent. And I was reminded of that this summer. I was at the pool and there was this little bitty guy. He, he was so tiny I couldn't believe he could even walk. And he had his little swim diapers on that they make these days. And he was on the side of a swimming pool and he would just toddle and the second he got to the edge of the pool he would just leap into the arms of his dad and dad would just put him right back up there and the little guy would hardly even wait for dad to back up before he would just fling himself back into the water time and time again you know this little guy had no idea what drowning was he had no idea how deep the water was in fact he didn't even know that it mattered how deep the water was He had no fear, absolutely no fear of this deep swimming pool that could have swallowed him up in a heartbeat because he didn't need to. He didn't need to. He had the simple and pure faith in the person he was jumping to. A tiny toddler's faith in his dad made him bold and courageous at the edge of a swimming pool. And Miriam had that same simple faith right here on the banks of the Nile River, the pure and simple faith of a child that lets her walk calmly and boldly into a situation that we all know, looking back on it, could have been the worst day of her life. It could have been a traumatic memory for her that she could never have gotten over as an adult. You know, there are a lot of things that we can say about this young girl this morning, about young Miriam, But I think one of the most important things that we can say about Miriam right here is that the simple faith of a child allows her to be a bold initiator of a divine solution. It is the simple faith of a child that lets all of us be bold initiators of divine solutions. And that divine solution saves her brother and reunites her family. She isn't afraid to watch what happens because she doesn't have any need to be afraid. She isn't afraid to march right up to this powerful Pharaoh's daughter who could have her put to death because she has a simple child's faith knowing that God will provide a divine solution. Our lesson from Miriam here is in the power of simple childlike faith and what it can do in all of our lives when we need divine solutions. We see the impact that that faith of a child has in this story. The faith of a child allowed a mother and a son and a father and a son and a brother and a sister to be reunited for a season. But possibly the greater impact of the faith of a child, simple faith, would be on the family of God. Baby Moses escaped the crocodiles and escaped the Pharaoh's death sentence to become the deliverer of the entire nation of Israel because of the faith of a child. God works in amazing ways, doesn't he? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We live by faith and not by sight. Miriam and her family 
lived by faith, not by sight. Our next encounter with Miriam is actually quite a while later. It's actually more than 80 years later. And we don't know much about Miriam's life in between the time we see her beside the Nile River with her child, uh, with the faith of a child, um, and when we are going to encounter her again here in Exodus chapter 15. What we do know is that she's continued to live um, with the nation of Israel in captivity in Egypt and that she has never married or had a family. She is a single gal. And as we pick up with her life in Exodus 15, the other thing that we're going to see about her is that at some point along the way, she was reunited with her brother Moses. We don't know whether she continued to have a relationship with Aaron even after Moses uh, was uh, exiled and had to flee the Pharaoh when he was 40 years old. Um, the first 18 verses of chapter 15, which because of time we're not going to be go there, but let me tell you, the first 18 verses, you may want to go back and read all of Exodus chapter 15. There is a great song of praise where Moses leads the nation of Israel in praise after they have walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. God has used Moses to part the Red Sea to allow the nation of Israel to escape. And then God has closed the waters of the Nile River, of the Red Sea, over um, the Egyptian army, and it has drowned all the horses and the riders and the chariots. Once and for all, with Moses at the lead, the nation of Israel has been freed from Pharaoh's army, which is where we're going to pick up Miriam's story right here, and they are free from his persecution once and for all. Exodus 15:19 is actually on your verse sheet. Let me read that to you. When the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen went into the seas, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Our young Miriam is now our old Miriam. She is probably almost 100 years old here if she was around 10, and it's been 80-plus years since we first saw her. But you know what? She hasn't lost her childlike faith. She still believes God is who he says he is. She's the first woman in the scriptures to actually actually be called a prophetess. And it looks like to me that she's actually our first women's ministry leader right here in this passage. We see the birth of women's ministry and their leaders. And she just seamlessly steps right in beside her brother Moses, who's now leader of of the whole nation of Israel. And she takes up the leadership of hundreds of thousands of women. We laughed in the leaders meeting when we were talking about her stepping in and taking over uh, for Moses and helping Moses out with the women right here. That first she saved him from the crocodiles and now she was saving him from the women. And uh, she is a valuable sister to have around. Now, I love this picture of Miriam stepping in on her own to... uh, lead the women, but what I love most is not that she is leading them, but what I love most is how we see that she's leading them. She's leading them with the humility of a true worshiper of the living God. A true worshiper, you know, we talk a lot about worship and and we all kind of equate in our mind that singing... uh, 
uh, choruses is worshiping, and it is part of worshiping, but really the definition of a true worshiper is someone who loves God most and puts God first. He's first in their hearts, he's first in their thoughts, and first in their actions. When something amazing happens in the life of a true worshiper, a true worshiper always attributes it to God no matter what their role in it has been. Being a true worshiper of the living God requires more than just a desire to be a worshiper, although that's part of it. Um, It also requires, on behalf of that worshiper, a true spirit of humility because humility is understanding who you are in light of who God is. A true worshiper is able to put God first and love God most when they understand who they are in light of who God is, when they understand that only he is God and they are not. And as Miriam picks up her tambourine right here in Exodus 15, that's exactly what we see in her life. She understands who she is, and she understands who God is, and she puts God first. She doesn't say, wow, did you people see how great my brother is? He just took that staff and parted this amazing Red Sea. Did you see him tap that staff again and kill the whole Egyptian army? Did you know that I saved my brother when he was a baby? Boy, you people would be in trouble without my family, wouldn't you? She doesn't say that. And I love that about her. In 1964, I remember sitting out in the driveway in my dad's car as he listened to what then was probably a really amazing sporting event. He was trying to find and listen to, which he finally did, the World Heavyweight uh, Championship boxing match between a very renowned uh, heavyweight champion by the name of Sonny Liston and a newcomer by the name of Cassius Clay. Now, Sonny Liston was supposed to walk away with the fight, but it turned out to be a great upset. I can still remember my dad's reaction to what happened at this fight. It was a great upset, and this new newcomer, this newcomer Cassius Clay, won the fight. And it wasn't very But just a few days after uh, Cassius Clay was the new heavyweight champion of the world, that he changed his name to something you'll probably all recognize, which was Muhammad Ali. And along with changing his name to Muhammad Ali, he also took up a slogan, which was, any time you see Muhammad Ali back then and even now, he says the slogan, which is, I am the greatest. And he would always kind of raise his hands. And over and over again in an interview, when you would see Muhammad Ali, it was all about, I am the greatest. If the interview would say, interviewer would say, what do you think about your next opponent? His answer would be, I am the greatest. No matter what the question was, his reply was, I am the greatest. Fortunately, Miriam is no Muhammad Ali. As she steps right into that leadership role beside Moses and Aaron, and ladies, I have to tell you, this is a role of great power and great influence and great notoriety for Miriam. She gives the glory to God. She puts him first. She loves him most. Obviously, she loves him more than herself and even her precious brother Moses. She knows who she is. And once again, we see that Miriam knows who God is. Proverbs 22.4 on your verse sheet says, Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. And just like her simple faith impacted her family and God's family, 
so does her humility as a true worshiper of God. In fact, the prophet Micah, 700 years later, the prophet Micah writes this about Miriam and her siblings. Micah 6.4 I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. Moses and Aaron and Miriam are the only siblings in all of Scripture to share such a remarkable, important, and powerful leadership role. With Moses at the lead, they provide a team that God has chosen to take the nation of Israel from captivity to blessings. And Miriam's simple faith and her humility as a true worshiper make a difference in that leadership team. Now we're going to take one last look at Miriam. It's going to be in Numbers 12. So turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Right there at the very first of your Bible. Let me read these verses to you as you look on. Miriam and Aaron began to talk with against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of the meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out, and then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, she would not have been in dis- would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until after she was brought back. I saw a Discovery Channel interview last week with a young man who claimed he had been tricked into smuggling cocaine out of Peru. Uh, he said a gang of thugs convinced him that he, they had kidnapped his girlfriend, and so then they forced him to take cocaine, and they duct-taped it all around his body, and then he put his clothes on on top of that, and they drove him to the airport and um, sent him off. He was supposed to get a plane to the United States and bring it into the United States. He said um, he eventually was uh, convicted and spent uh, several years in prison in Peru, and this was a story about how that had happened. But the interesting thing to me is he said the most difficult part of this whole thing for him was not when he went into the prison and spent all these years in a prison in Peru, but the most difficult part of this for him was when he was going through the security, and the moment he was discovered with all that cocaine on him, they made him take his clothes off, that that 
was the worst moment of his life, being discovered with what was underneath his clothes. As God exposes the sin um, of jealousy, of Miriam's jealousy against Moses, that is underneath her seemingly righteous question that she throws out here, I can't help to think that that has to be the most devastating moment for her, perhaps even more devastating than the leprosy and being outside the camp. But having God expose and reveal your heart, not only to him, but also to everyone around, must be difficult as it gets, ladies. When this happens, about two years have actually passed since Miriam took up her leadership role alongside Moses and Aaron. It was just two years ago that she was singing and praising God and leading the women. I think Miriam was probably a very confident woman anyway, but after assuming her role alongside her brothers, she has to be feeling as if she's on top of her game. She is truly a woman of influence among the women of the entire nation of Israel, and it was probably true that anyone had Miriam that had Miriam's ear also had Moses' ear. Life was good for Miriam, probably much better than it had been all those years when she was in captivity as a slave in Egypt. And this morning, Miriam's story needs to be a great reminder to each of us to how vigilant we must be in our spiritual lives when life is good. When life is good, because... It's probably in the good times, ladies, and not in the bad times that we're going to take our eyes off of God and stumble. It's not when things smooth out. It's when things smooth out that we're more likely to become complacent and live out of our spirit rather than out of God's spirit. So even though she's displayed great faith and great humility in the past, when life is good, Miriam makes an almost fatal mistake here. Fatal for her relationship with Moses, fatal for the leadership team, and almost fatal for her very own life. She takes her eyes off God, and what does she do? She begins to think about herself. She begins to think about her importance as a leader. She begins to think about all the women that have come to her for advice. All the times when she has been influential. She may even look back and think, wow, look what I've done in Moses' life. Now up to this point in her life, we haven't seen Miriam be self-focused. I don't believe she was really thinking about herself at all on the banks of the Nile River when she watched that basket and was brave enough to approach the princess and propose a plan. I don't think she was thinking about herself, or at least the scripture doesn't give us any clue that she was, when we look back to Exodus 15 by the banks of the Red Sea and see her not only truly praising God herself, but leading others to truly praise God. But now, as she challenges Moses' authority and leadership, it's clearly just about Miriam and her jealousy of him even though she tries to cover it up with a distracting issue of Moses' new wife. We all have a tendency to do that, don't we? We don't really want to expose the real issue in our life, but we can create a smoke screen every now and then when we want to bring it out. The truth is Moses had actually, according to the scriptures, done nothing wrong in marrying a Cushite wife. I've put Exodus 34 down there on your verse sheet. We're not going to read it. You may want to read it later. But the Cushites are not among those that the Israelites were told not to marry. There are a lot of other ites on there, but the Cushites are not listed. So, and of course, God doesn't really act like Moses does anything wrong here. Um, 
We don't know what happened to cause Miriam to become jealous of her brother Moses after all uh, this time of walking along beside him and being part of his leadership team. It could have been that Moses' new wife had taken on some kind of prominence among the women. Maybe she was getting the attention as the new wife of the leader that Miriam was used to having. Maybe it was simply that Miriam was jealous that Moses had another woman in his life because she had been the big sister that had been so important in his life up until then. You know, the other thing that might have been was that... um, she listened she, to the women that tickled her ear uh, that were unhappy that Moses had not married one of them. And they began to say to her, who does he think he is? Who are you, Miriam? We know how important you are, but who does Moses think he is? Whatever it was, much like the water that closed over the horses and the riders and the Red Sea and drowned them all, jealousy and envy close over Miriam's simple faith and her humble spirits with disastrous results. You know, the scriptures tell us there are disastrous results from envy and jealousy. Proverbs 14:13 on your verse sheet says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And James 3:16 says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Jealousy and envy are not very high on God's list of leadership qualities, and we see that he acts very quickly here in this situation. When Miriam joins Aaron in attacking Moses' credibility and his leadership, Moses doesn't have to defend himself because it's God that shows up to defend Moses and set the record straight. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Moses is so humble, he never speaks a word. And the God of all the universe shows up to talk about who Moses is. Now, my favorite part of this story is that Moses steps in without hesitation in verse 13 to save Miriam's life. It's a tribute to their relationship as a brother and a sister. And think about what a unique twist it is to Miriam's life. We started out looking at Miriam and how her faith and her humility actually stepped in on the banks of the Nile River to boldly save her brother's life. And now we see her brother and his faith and his humility stepping in to save Miriam's life. This brother and this sister have come full circle in their relationship. Miriam's jealousy could have completely destroyed her relationship with with Moses. If led to continue, her jealousy could probably have completely um, destroyed God's leadership of the nation of Israel. And, of course, it would have destroyed her own life. We don't know anything about Miriam's leadership role after she spent those seven days with leprosy outside of the camp while the whole nation knew what was happening to her, knew what had gone on, and knew the punishment God had imposed upon her. But no doubt, this kind of shame and this kind of embarrassment and the memories of her leprosy were going to be hard to overcome for Miriam. The scriptures tell us that Miriam died just before Moses and Aaron died. They all lived another 38 years But none of them, including Miriam, were allowed to enter the promised land. So this morning, I want you to remember Miriam as a remarkable woman whose simple faith and humble spirit allowed her to have a powerful impact on her family and on God's family. But we should let her lesson 
on the jealousy that comes from self-focus, the jealousy that crops up when we turn um, our eyes back on ourselves. We should let that lesson have a powerful impact on us and our relationships. I want to talk about some application here before we close. I know that most of you have probably seen the news videos of the devastation that the recent hurricanes left on Galveston. In fact, Mary talked about it a little bit this morning with her daughter, devastation clear up into Houston. Now, it's the coastal areas that are prone to that kind of devastation from hurricanes. We're not really prone to devastation from hurricanes. And just like the coastline is prone to devastation by hurricanes, I think our relationships are particularly prone to devastation um, by jealousy and sibling relationships more than other relationships. So let's talk about some ways that we can avoid that kind of jealousy from um, that kind of devastation from jealousy. If you have a house on the coast, you have a lot of things that you prepare when a hurricane is coming, and we want to prepare for the uh, devastation of jealousy. And the first one is, is in order to avoid the devastation of jealousy in our relationships, we have got to keep a close eye on our spiritual barometer. If you watch the Weather Channel when there's a hurricane coming, they depend upon the barometer. A drop in the barometer signals the strengthening of the storm. And when we have a drop in our spiritual barometers, we can know that there may be a storm coming in our close relationships. When we stop reading the Word of God, when we stop praying for our families and our relationships, I can't tell you how many times I meet with women who say, I'm so angry with my brother or my sister or my neighbor or whatever, I can't even pray for them. And so when we begin to lose our connection with God, when we begin to have emotions that keep us from God, we need to have a heads up. A storm might be coming in our relationships. Now, the next thing we need to do to avoid the devastation of jealousy, we've got to avoid comparisons. And as someone in the small group leaders, I think it was Barbara Bates, brought that up. What a deadly thing comparisons are in our life, particularly, I think, in our sibling relationships. And I think that probably one of the root uh, causes of Miriam's jealousy was comparison. Whether she began to compare herself to the influence that other people are listening to Moses more than they're listening to me, or she began to compare herself with Moses' new wife, she's got things that I don't have. And how many times have you as a mother, those of you that are mothers in the audience, or perhaps you even said this to your mother, you heard uh, children say, they got more than I did. Theirs is bigger than mine. Theirs is better than mine. Comparison starts at a very, very early age, and it is deadly, deadly. At the end of the Gospel of John, Peter, we see in the very last chapter, John 21, Peter is talking to Jesus, and he turns around and notices that the disciple John is following him, and he says, Peter says to Jesus, you just got to love Peter for the things he says, but Peter says to Jesus, okay, well, you've told me what's going to happen to me, but I want to know what's going to happen to him. Is his life going to be as hard as my life? Essentially, that's what he said. And Jesus says this to Peter. It's not on your verse sheet, but you might want to write it down. It's John 21, 22. Let me read it to you. Jesus says to Peter, if I want him to remain alive, what is that to you? You must follow me. Jesus makes it pretty simple for Peter and for all of us. Stop comparing. 
Stop comparing. It really doesn't matter what's going to happen in any other person's life. It really doesn't matter what their body looks like or what their house lives in or what their husband does or where their children go to school. What only matters is that you follow me. If we would um, stop comparing and start following hard after Jesus, our relationships would avoid jealousy. Along with stopping comparing, there's something else that we've got to do. We've got to steer clear of an entitlement mentality in our relationships. You know, we all have an idea of what we deserve in life. And certainly a lot of us have an idea about what we deserve in our relationships. And it gets us in trouble every single time. We can never lose sight of the fact that, ladies, what we really deserve is eternal separation from God because we're all sinners. So if we get what we deserve, we're not going to be very happy. But the good news is God isn't going to get us that. By grace and mercy, we are going to have a relationship with him. But I think Miriam probably began to think she deserved everything that Moses' new wife got. Or maybe she deserved the esteem and acclaim that Moses had. And it took her down the path to jealousy. As family members, um, and as a culture, I know all of you know that we're eaten up with entitlement mentality. I mean, we think we deserve good jobs, we deserve health care, we deserve this, we deserve that. In our relationships, it's no different. We think we deserve things. As family members, we have got to give up any feeling of entitlement if we're going to avoid the devastation of jealousy. And finally, ladies... It's hard to go wrong in any relationship when we put God first above our own feelings, above our own needs and our wants, and above the other person's feelings and needs and wants. When we're truly looking for God's best in our life and in our relationship, we won't go wrong. When we are doing what we saw Miriam do beside the Red Sea, putting God first and loving God most, it not only closes the gate that leads down the path to jealousy, it latches it. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you that you are a merciful and good and kind God. And I thank you for the lessons that are from the scriptures. Father, I pray that we would be women that have just the faith of children, the faith to trust and believe and to not ask too many questions. And, Father, I pray that we would be worshipers, that we would have the humility of true worshipers to put you first and love you best. I ask your blessing upon these women as they leave today and on their week until we come back together. And we pray that as women we will give you honor and glory. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.